0: You may be seated. We're teaching a series on the seven letters to the churches when Jesus appeared to John on the island of Patmos in uh, about 92, 93 A.D. Um, He spoke specific information, gave specific information for John to relate to the churches, seven churches that we would know in modern-day Turkey. It was known as Asia then. And uh, we've covered three of them, the, church, the letter the, to the church at Ephesus, uh, well I say the letter to the church at Ephesus, really the letter wasn't to the church, the letter was to the pastor of each of these churches, and then of course he related and read these, this uh, information to the churches. But specifically it was to the pastors of these churches. So we've covered the church at Ephesus, we've covered the church at Smyrna, we've covered the church at uh, Pergamus. Now this morning I want to cover the church at Thyatira. It's the longest of the letters. It's fourteen verses. But before we get in that, I want to um, um, kind of tie up some loose ends and uh, with some of the things that we've seen before and and set the stage a little bit. There's um, uh, we should have time to to do that and and cover everything that we need with the church at Thyatira as well. But. Um, uh, I tell you what. Why don't you? We're going to start in Revelation chapter two, the letter to the church at Thyatira, as it begins in verse eighteen. But um, but before I do that, I want to start in uh, uh, Acts chapter fifteen because the the to give you a, a reminder of what's happened in the church. The church began about thirty two, thirty three A.D. Holy Ghost was poured out in uh, on the day of Pentecost in uh, Acts chapter 2. Most everybody agrees that it was about 33 A.D. Um, and over the next 18 years, the church spread. And because it spread, it spread to the Gentile world. There was a lot of uh, disagreement among the um, uh, The leaders of the church at Jerusalem. And of course you realize when the church first began in Jerusalem. It was entirely a Jewish church. And so when the uh, the gospel began to be spread to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10. When Cornelius sent by the word of the angel sent for uh, Peter. And he went down. And uh, the Holy Ghost fell on the Gentiles. Man that was a big deal. I mean it, it created a big stir. Peter was called on the carpet about it. Because the idea... Among the church, which up until that point in time was primarily Jewish, the idea was only Jews could be saved. That the gospel of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was only for the Jews. They didn't understand at that point in time that uh, Jesus was to be sent to the Gentiles, the Jews first and then to the, to the Gentiles. So then the Gentiles began to come into the kingdom of God and the Jews are, are sitting around saying, well, what do we do with these people? They don't know the law of Moses. They don't keep the law of Moses. They don't have the heritage that we have. What do we do with them? Paul goes on his missionary journey, his first missionary journey. And shortly thereafter, there are people that come to the cities that he's been to trying to get these people to keep the law of Moses and to be circumcised. So Paul got real upset about it and realized something needs to be done. So he goes to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 and and is, uh, in, in Acts 15, what is known as the council at Jerusalem is held. It's probably about 52 AD when this takes place. Now, Peter says what he has to say. The Jewish leaders that want the law of Moses to be continued and, and circumcision to be required and so forth, they have their say. Paul says what the Holy Ghost has done to him, what God has done to him through his ministry and the Gentiles and so forth and uh, and james who is the half brother of jesus not one of the original 12 uh church tradition says that jesus appeared to him after he was raised from the dead james got saved and and became eventually became the leader of the church at jerusalem james is the one that decides he hears what everybody has to say and then he declares he says okay i've heard everybody's testimony what the Holy Ghost has done and what everybody thinks. Wherefore, my sentence is this. He makes the decision. He's in charge. And the decision that he makes is um, that there are very few requirements that are going to be placed upon the Gentiles, but there are a few. And so they write a letter and send Paul and Silas to deliver the letter along with some others. But let me read to you what what they determined. Here's what the letter says. This is Acts chapter 15, verse 28. It says, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And here they are. That you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication from which if you keep yourselves you shall do well, fare you well. So basically what he's saying is there are two requirements, two things that are necessary. Number one, keep, think, keep yourself polluted from the things offered to idols. And secondly, fornication. Now remember the Gentile world that this is written to. They, these are cities where there are all kinds of temples to, to any number of different false gods and so forth. The, uh, the Romans have been, um, uh, incorporated Greek mythology and the Greek gods into their culture. And so there's a worship of all kinds of different gods and sacrifices being made to those gods. And during the temple worship, there's all kinds of sexual immorality. I think it's a, well, if I was God, I wouldn't, I don't know how I would have done it. Because when we read the word fornication, where the Bible says avoid and flee from fornication, we just think of sexual immorality. But the sexual immorality that we experience in our day and in our culture is nothing like what they experienced. I mean, you picked the temple worship that you wanted to based on the who had the best orgy, and you could well understand the impact that that would have, especially on the, the young people of a, of a city. I mean, how do you tell a, how do you tell young people whose hormones are raging? We don't have good sense anyway. How do you tell them, that don't have anything to do with that stuff over there, those those parties and, and and that. How do you do that when the parents are involved themselves? Now, I have to be careful not to make too many jokes about this. One thing I know for sure is, If I was involved in temple worship and that kind of stuff because I didn't know any better, I would not go to the one where my mom and dad went. (laughs) Outside of that, I don't know. (laughs) But it was so ingrained in the culture. And just like anything else when it comes to immorality, sexual impurity, nobody wants the light shined on them to indicate or, or imply that they're doing something wrong. And so the way to avoid that is get everybody involved in doing what you're doing too. And folks, the devil's tactics haven't changed. We don't have temple worship that involves sexual immorality. But the devil still uses the same things, the same works of the flesh to draw people away. Now, Paul writes to this culture. And you could, you could well understand if you come out of this temple worship and you see yourself as the righteousness of God you see yourself as far as God's plan for you to keep yourself pure and and so forth you're the odd man out I mean it's a real real significant step that you're taking to turn your back on what everybody else is doing everybody else is uh, is open about doing to say no I'm not going to do that you become ostracized now as a result we see that in some of these cities, like with the city of, uh, concerning, uh, uh, including the city of Corinth, they had real questions about, all right, well, if sexual worship in the temples is wrong, what about sex in marriage? What's the issue concerning that? People were going to extremes on both ends of the spectrum, because then, as in, uh, in many ways today, people, parents, and even organizations today try to change sexual behavior by taking, uh, starting on the crusade against sex. Well, well, how do you answer these things? And folks, you need to realize you can learn a lot by the way the devil operates. You can learn a lot about God and you can learn a lot about yourselves. And that is if the devil is trying to use sex to draw you away from God, which is the ultimate goal of immorality, to draw you away from God. Some people have the idea that uh, the pornography, internet pornography and stuff like that. Well, that's a victimless act. It doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah, it does. Because the devil's aim is the same in every aspect of immorality. And that is to draw you away from God. That's what the sexual impurity and immorality was all about in the temple worship. It was getting you to yield to your flesh so that you turn away from God. And it always has been that way. Well, Paul writing to the church in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says that marriage is honorable unto all and the marriage bed is undefiled. Now think about the people that he's writing that to. It's written to the Jews, but the Jews that are scattered around the world. The Jews that are living in Gentile cities. And he says that marriage is the sanctifier. The marriage relationship is the sanctifier of sex. He does not say the marriage bed is undefiled unless you do this, that, or the other, which is a lot of what was going on in the temple worship. What's he telling us? Well, just like we can see the devil's tactics, that immorality is designed to take you away from God, we can see that God's purpose for sex to be sanctified through and only through the marriage relationship, that sexual practice becomes a matter of conscience, not a matter of commandment. Paul didn't say, okay, here's the list of what you can do concerning sex, and here's the list of stuff you better not do concerning sex. It's a matter of conscience between you and your spouse and God. So as a result... We've got people on both ends. Like I said, there are people, parents, and and churches many times that go on crusades against sex. Well, that doesn't do any good, it just alienates people and drives them away. But on the other hand, you've got some churches that have made sex a plank, a foundation stone, or a foundation plank of their church. Those churches never last. The leadership winds up falling into immorality and the church explodes. We had an experience with that in, the, um, in modern times just over the last couple of years. Church came out, had the answers for sex, did a lot of preaching on sex. Well, the guy winds up having an, an adulterous affair. Church blows up and thousands of people. It grew like crazy. Everybody wants to come here about sex. Kind of like the temple worship. You're going to talk about what? You bet, we'll come. But the church blows up and thousands of people are spiritually damaged and scattered. So what does this mean? Well, folks, it means this. It means that Jesus has purified us, but there's still a devil out there that wants to take us away from God. Now, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam are two of the things that the devil used some 60 years later after the church's uh, 60 years after the church was born some what would it be 50, uh, 52 to 93 40 years after the church, the council of Jerusalem I guess and sex is still the issue the same requirements or impositions. I, I don't know what to the same um Principles that were established in the council of Jerusalem in 52 are still in place and still hounding the church. The devil is still hammering on that same door, beating on that same door regarding the church, trying to get people to turn away from God. Well, that's exactly what's happening in Thyatira. Let's go now to Revelation chapter 2. Thyatira is a very unimportant city. Now, by that I mean you've got the main cities of Ephesus and Pergamum in the area uh, that's known as Asia those are ancient cities we know of their storied histories and all this kind of stuff Thyatira was the city that was started by the Romans as a military outpost it's east of Pergamum and it was a military outpost for a couple of reasons one is to guard against any military incursion from the east it was on the border of Asia and Mysia Mysia was one of the places that Paul uh, considered going into when he um, was forbidden to go into Asia. And um, as a result, the city of Thyatira became a blue-collar blue-collar town. We don't know much about Thyatira. There's not much left of it, but some of the archeolo- archaeological ruins and remains that we have show that it was a, a, had a lot of trade guilds. The, there were, um, uh, as a matter of fact, you may remember in Acts chapter 16, When uh, Paul gets to Philippi, one of the first people that he gets saved is a lady named Lydia, who is a seller of purple from Thyatira. That was one of the trade guilds that was there. Dye makers. There was a a bronze making guild that was there. There was a leather working guild that was there. There were 10 different guilds that they specifically identified from archaeological ruins and, and markings and stuff like that that was there in the city. Now, apparently, what would happen as far as Christians were concerned is that Christians would leave some of the bigger places where there was greater persecution and their lives were more greatly endangered, like Pergamum, like Smyrna, and they would go to these small towns, Thyatira being one of them, because they could live a more peaceful life there. And so the church was thriving in Thyatira. It wasn't nearly the size of the church that we would expect or that we know of in, in Ephesus, certainly, or Pergamum. But it was a thriving church. And it says a lot about the, the, uh, the condition of the church. So let's start reading in verse 18, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. It says, And unto the angel, the pastor of the church in Thyatira, write, These things saith the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet like unto the fine breast. First thing Jesus identifies is what he can see and what he can walk on his paths. I know thy works and love and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. Second time he mentions, and the last works to be more than the first. In other words, he's saying, this church is a church that's growing, it's thriving, it's got a lot of momentum. It's a service-oriented church. This is a church that would get favorable write-ups in the newspaper. This is a church that probably has a lot of outreaches to the homeless or the hungry or whatever it might be, civic-minded, community-minded church. It's exactly the opposite from the church in Ephesus. You remember the church in Ephesus? They were strong on doctrine. But they would left their first love They weren't reaching out to people And showing the love of God Like they should have Like they did in the beginning This church is just the opposite They're strong on love They're strong in their works They're strong in their community outreach But they're weak on doctrine Notwithstanding Verse 20 Notwithstanding I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat uh, eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now those are the two points that the council in Jerusalem imposed upon the Gentiles, the only two. That's really it. So you can see some 40 years later, that the same thing, the devil's using the same thing, the same tactics that the Holy Ghost warned about for the church to keep themselves pure and unspotted from the world. Same things are taking place. Only this situation, this instance, is coming from within the church, not outside the church. Verse 21, And I gave her space or time to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. Now, this has got to be your followers, because remember, the letter is written to the pastor. If these were natural children, these would be his natural children. He didn't say, I'm going to kill your children. He said, I'm going to kill her children, her followers, her disciples, in other words. And I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say and unto the rest in Thyatira as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak I will put upon you none other burden. That's exactly what the Holy Ghost directed in Acts chapter 15. We will lay no other burden upon you. Why? Because it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. God doesn't change. So he said, I'm not going to put any other burden upon you. But that which you have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let me say this in case I forget to say it later on. The morning star is a a reference to a relationship with Jesus, close fellowship with him. And what he's saying is the closest fellowship comes from keeping the flesh under. That was true then, it's true now. Now, here's what's happening. First of all, there was a woman in the church... Probably her name was not Jezebel. The name Jezebel is a Phoenician name. And the Phoenicians were long since off the scene. Hundreds of years ago. Before then. So he's using a term. That's biblically oriented. And a reference to the Old Testament. Person. Who was the wife of Ahab. Who was named Jezebel. Now if you go back in the Bible. And read the story of Jezebel. It wouldn't really take too long. We've. But I won't take the time to do it this morning. If you go back and read, you'll find out that she was the daughter of the king of the Zidonites. I don't know who they were. But apparently they were Baal worshippers. And when she married King Ahab, it was probably a military alliance or some kind of political alliance. When she married King Ahab, she introduced the children of Israel to the worship of Baal. Now, it started off tame enough it wasn't one of these things where she came in and said, now, you can't worship God anymore. God meaning Jehovah. You can't worship Jehovah anymore. From now on, everybody's going to worship Baal. It's not the way it went. She said, well, sure, you can worship God. You can continue to worship Jehovah. But we want to make you, we want to expose you to the worship of Baal too. He's a God too. Well, the worship of Baal was involved and included a lot of the stuff that we've talked about with some of these cities hundreds of years later sexual immorality and offering sacrifices and so forth now when the people basically were giving an option you can go to the synagogue and you can hear the Torah read or you can have the sexual orgy in the feast you can well understand that a lot of people were pulled off into the desires of their flesh or pulled off by the desires of their flesh and they wind up turning away from God now in the meantime There were certain advantages to worshiping Baal. First of all, it's approved by the government. The king himself is doing this. This is the queen. So you're in line and in lockstep with what everybody that's connected politically would do or would want you to do. So there's a benefit there. That would certainly impact your financial relations and work relations and business opportunities and so forth. But unbeknownst to the people, Jezebel starts killing off who are called those that are called prophets of God. Now, those prophets are probably the priests and the ministers. A better word for that is probably ministers, some of the lower-level priests. She couldn't kill off the high priest. He'd be too visible. But she started killing off some of the other ministers and people that were in the service of God to the, to the point where Obadiah, who was a an advisor to King Ahab, hid away 150 of the prophets of God. Now, it was on the heels of this that Elisha comes on the scene. I'm sorry, I said Elisha, I mean Elijah. Elijah comes on the scene. Do you remember the story of Elijah in the, in the contest on Mount Carmel? Elijah shows up and he's, he's a thorn in Ahab's side. Elijah shows up out of nowhere. We don't know anything about him, where he comes from or anything about him. He shows up out of nowhere and says, it'll not rain again till I say so and disappears. God takes care of him, but it doesn't rain for three years. By the end of those three years, Ahab is fit to be tied because it's proven very clearly to the people that he has no power, no matter what he says about himself and his position and whatever, he has no power, but there is some hidden prophet somewhere is controlling the weather. He set out search parties to every quarter of the world, or within his reach at least, to try and find him, and he can't find this guy anywhere. Elijah shows up and appears before Obadiah and says, Go tell King Ahab I'm here. He has to talk him into it and promise that he won't leave so that Ahab's life won't be endangered. But then Ahab comes and says, Why are you troubling Israel? And Elijah says, I'm not the trouble for Israel, you are. Now folks, basically, here's what the prophet says, and I I don't know why, well, I do know why. But about a year ago, maybe a little bit more, I caught myself praying. I was praying in other tongues, and then I heard myself praying out some things in English. And I was praying out some things in English to the effect of, Lord, raise up prophets to speak to kings and nations, even as in the days of old. And ever since then, once I've caught that with my mind, ever since then, I've made a point to pray for that because that's what we need in the last days. If men are going to wax worse and worse and the earth is going to be shaken and it's certainly being shaken politically and in every other way, then what we need is we need people that speak for God. We need people like Elijah to stand up in the face of the king and say, you're just the king. That's all you are as a king. There is a God in heaven, and he's the one that has power. Well, that's basically what Elijah does. So Elijah sets up this contest, and he says before the people, and this is so important, this is related to Jezebel and her prophets, her Baal, the 450 prophets of Baal that she's introduced to Israel. He says to the people, how long halt ye between two opinions? In other words, how long are you going to serve God and Baal? Folks, God does not want to share you with anything. If he's God, he wants to be your only God. He doesn't just want to be your savior. He wants to be your Lord. He gave his life so that you could give him yours. Not part of your life. Not the part that you want to accept for what you want to reserve for yourself. He wants you to serve him completely. And that's the only place of close fellowship that you're going to find with God. Well, that's what Jezebel is doing. Jezebel is saying to the people, now the Jezebel I'm talking about is the one that's referred to in Revelation 2 now, in Thyatira. This woman Jezebel is saying, you don't have to separate yourself from these, the worship of other gods. Now here's the, here's the, the reality of the situation. These trade guilds, Represented your opportunities for business. It represented your financial opportunity and your financial future. If you were not in one of these trade guilds, your opportunities for business were severely limited. It was like a union meeting, and these union meetings would would, uh, in most cases, according to historical documents, these union meetings or trade guild meetings would have a worship. They'd meet in one of these temples, and they would worship their patron saint. You remember, for example, in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, the silversmiths started crying out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Well, why? Because Diana was the patron god of the silversmiths. They made money making statues, little statues of Diana. Well, each of these trade guilds had their own patron saint, their own god that they worshipped. And so they would go to the temples of these gods once a month As a group and have these feasts and a lot of times there were sexual practices involved and so forth. And so if you were going to do any business in the city and much of the business in the city was contracted from places like Ephesus and Pergamum and some of the other places, larger places around. If you were going to have an opportunity to make any money at your trade, you were going to need to be part of one of these trade guilds, which means you were going to have to participate In the monthly sacrifices and feasts and sexual practice that's involved in the in the union meetings. Well, Jezebel says, "That's all right. God knows your situation. God understands where you live. God understands the times that we live in. God understands that you need to have the opportunity to make money. And besides, we're not under the law. We're under grace." And so God won't be mad at you for doing what you need to do to provide for your families, to provide a, a living for, your, for yourself and so forth. Just feel free to do these things without any sense of conscience or condemnation concerning it. And Jesus says that's a problem. Now, I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 21. Paul, writing about some of these things, said this. There's a lot in here that we could read. But let me just summarize what he winds up saying. And Corinth is a very similar city to what we're talking about in some of these other places. They had a temple of Apollo, and uh, there, and there, they had a temple to Aphrodite. And a lot of the same immoral, religious, sexual practices were taking place, and so forth, and meats offered idols and such. So here's what he said, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 21. Paul said, by the Holy Ghost, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Jezebel said you could. This woman, Jezebel, said you could. Now, not only that, but did you recognize, did you notice, uh, what verse is it? Um, Verse 24, Revelation two twenty four, But unto you I say and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, this idea that you can do both. You can serve God and just as well by going to the temples and offering idols, offering sacrifice to idols and stuff as if you don't. But as many as you have not had this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they say. Now here's what's happening. Jesus is identifying. And think about this. Think if you're in the church of Thyatira and this letter comes and the pastor starts reading this letter. You know what's being said. You know what's being done. And even though the woman is not identified by name, you know exactly who he's talking about. And you know that she's saying, well, not even Paul didn't understand. You know he's been dead now for a long time. And Paul said you couldn't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of idols as well at the same time, participate in the Lord's table and the table of idols. But we have deeper revelation. We have more understanding, greater understanding. And Jesus is saying, yeah, it's deeper, all right. It's straight from the pit of hell. Now think about how personal this is concerning the situation that was existing. Now here's the real question, and really the only question that has to be identified we can talk about the doctrines and uh, and for us the doctrine is more easily seen although i think maybe it would be to our advantage to recognize the similarities or the application and that is how many christians do you know and i sure hope you're not in this category but how many christians do you know that either hide or mute their christianity when it comes to their business The same temptation or the same opportunity to deny Jesus is available for us as it was for them. There's a lot of people, a lot of people that I've known in this church that love God when it comes to services. But they just tone it down at work. And the reason they tone it down at work is because they don't want to put themselves in a position where their job might be jeopardized. Or their income might be affected. Now folks, I'm not talking about going out and being a flaming idiot. When it comes to Christianity. Jesus never said be an idiot. In fact, the Bible says that the wisdom of God will keep you from being an idiot. So I'm not talking about being somebody that goes out and and creates your own problems. In the name of the Lord. So to speak. I'm talking about people that have a different set of values. Different set of principles at church is what they do at work. That's what I'm talking about. This is what they were being tempted with. This is what they this is the opportunity for a loss of finances, a loss of revenue would provide for them. So here's my question. See, if we if if we've identified that the doctrine That you can walk in both worlds is wrong. And the Bible couldn't be clearer about that. Then the question I have is. How in the world did this woman. Who Jesus references her to Jezebel of the Old Testament. How does this woman gain a place of prominence in the church. To where she can say this. And hold this position. Remember it's written to the pastor. And Jesus said I've got a few things against you. Well there's an explanation. You may not like it but there is one. The oldest Greek manuscripts we have do not say that woman Jezebel, but rather it says your wife Jezebel. Apparently, the woman that's providing the false doctrine of walking in both worlds, worshiping idols and worshiping God, that has this deeper revelation that Jesus says is really from the pit of hell. Is the pastor's wife. And she calls herself a prophetess. Now you could well understand what a position that would put the pastor in. It's his wife that's doing something that he doesn't agree with. How do you handle that? Well apparently he's not handling it well as far as Jesus is concerned. Now, let's deal with the other part of the issue, and that is, what about the punishment? What does Jesus say will take place if something isn't done? Let's read these verses again, starting in verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, your wife Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, meaning she's not. Brother Hagen used to say, you can put any kind of label you want to on an, on an empty can, And that won't fill the can. Which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. People are being influenced by what she says and what she says is of God to do things against the Lord. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication. Notice he didn't say and that's why the lightning fell and she's left as a burning spot. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. Some translations say a sick bed or a bed of sickness. And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. Now, folks, that's a hard scripture for us because God doesn't kill. The devil steals, kills, and destroys. How do we answer that and I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he that searches the reins in the hearts and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Turn back with me to first Corinthians chapter five. What is this saying? Jesus is saying I'm going to deal very specifically with her and with those that follow her doctrine and her influence and it's going to result in death. Now, the, as I said, uh, where the scripture says in the King James, I'll cast her into a bed. There's uh, an, an, kind of an allegory here. She's promoting sexual immorality. A bed of sexual sin, I'll throw in her own bed. Now, the translation of bed of sickness is really not supported. However, you do need to be aware of the reality of this if you've got a pastor or church leader that's involved in immorality and over a space of time will not repent that church or that organization primarily churches but that church will be riddled with sickness absolutely riddled with sickness now why is that because of the way that God brings judgment upon his people and notice how that is. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm just going to start reading in verse 1 to get the context. Paul said, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is, is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. In other words, he's saying, You're doing stuff that even the Gentiles don't do. Now, remember the background of sexual immorality through these temple worships and, uh, of false gods and so forth. And... One of the things about sexual immorality is it breaks down your resistance to principles. It's one of the ways the devil tries to get you to turn away from God. It'll break down your resistance. It's one of the problems with with, uh, pornography. It breaks down your resistance so that now you look at everybody in in light of the pornography and the pornographic pictures you've been seeing. It changes your outlook. And you are puffed up, verse two. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Folks, there are some people in the church that it's okay to lose. Now, who? Let me stop here for a minute. What would the, the what kind of church would be least likely to lose anybody? The ones that are weak on doctrine, like Thyatira. The ones that are outreach oriented. Well, we just want to love everybody. We're all accepted in the eyes of God. Yeah, but you've got sexual immorality in your midst. Well, God still loves you. Well, okay, that's true. But sexual immorality allowed to go unchecked in the church will spread in the church. And God's not okay with that. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, you guys should have mourned and done something about this to remove this guy from your midst. He's literally saying, this is not my job. It should be yours. If there's one thing the modern day church is weak on, it's church discipline. Now, there's a reason for that. And that is most of the church is not living right to begin with. So how do you discipline other people that aren't living right? So Paul says, verse 3, For I verily as absent in body but present in spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. Paul's saying somebody needs to judge this and take care of it so you won't, so I did. What judgment is going to be exercised? Verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, And my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That his spirit, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So back to Revelation chapter two, when Jesus says, I'm going to deal with this, I'll cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds and I will kill her children with death. How is that going to happen? Jesus has got to be talking about the same thing Paul did. I'll turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Please notice God's not the destroyer of the flesh. Satan is. But the principle of judgment is true. And it's unchanging. If after having given a period of time or a space to repent of wrongdoing. If repentance is not forthcoming. Then there is a consequence. Is it God that's doing it to you? No. It's God that's lifting his hand of mercy so that the devil does it to you. Well, doesn't that mean, Pastor Mike, that God and the devil are working together? No. It means the devil is always at the door, but God's keeping me at bay. It means the protective hand of God is at work a lot more than what you and I usually recognize. And that it's our fellowship with the Lord and our walking in the righteousness that he's provided for us through the work of Jesus. That keeps us safe from the attacks of the enemy. So I'll kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know. So this must be something that other churches know about. It doesn't say anything about having been influenced by her. The other churches being influenced by her. But apparently the other churches know. I'll kill their children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he that searches the reins and hearts and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Now did you notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5 where we just read about the turning over the individuals to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Folks you need to realize something and that is even when the judgment of God comes it comes in such a way so that your spirit is saved. In other words, there's an implication. We can't exactly prove it. but scripture, but you can't disprove it either. And that is there's an implication. Implied truth. That if something continues long enough. You can lose your salvation over it. But God in his mercy will step in. Even if it costs you your physical life here on the earth. Even if your physical life is shortened here on the earth, it's the mercy of God that your spirit is not damned for eternity. Now, folks, being turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh is not a good thing, but it sure do be going to hell. Here are some things you'll find in churches, and that is many times the church will gain momentum, pastor will gain popularity. The ministry will be promoted and, and will be expanding. And somehow or another, the pastor will get lifted up and he'll fall into sin. God will give him space to repent. But during that space to repent, the church continues to grow. And please notice, this church is continuing to grow even with Jezebel in the midst. So much so that Jesus says, I know your works and your second works, your later works are even greater than your first works. Church is increasing well what would that cause the person that's in sin to think well first of all he's in deception there's a real problem with deception and that is you don't know you're being deceived if deception came with a warning label most of us would know to avoid it warning this is deception it will lead to your death oh okay okay But it doesn't come that way. So when a pastor or a church leader or minister gets caught in immorality, and folks, please understand, we're not just talking about somebody that falls into something and tries to struggle and tries to get themselves out. That's not what's happening with Jezebel. God's given her space to repent, which means he's had to have brought some kind of information to her about her error. And she still won't accept it. She won't receive it. So there comes a point where God has to do something. But prior to that point, prior to that point where God has to step in, what happens? Well, the church and the ministry continues to grow, continues to flourish, continues to increase. Most ministers that I've had acquaintance with or have read about in that time think that God must not be mad at me about this. This must be okay with God. And I've heard people make all kinds of excuses. There's one guy that fancied himself a prophet that said that because his wife wasn't meeting his needs sexually, God's making an exception for him so that he could have other women. Folks, when you get to the place where you think the rules don't apply to you, that's a bad place. But that's what Jezebel's doing. She's saying she has greater revelation, deeper knowledge. Jesus said, yeah, it's deep, all right. As was deep as hell. And so when a ministry or a church continues to grow, continues to increase, continues to flourish, then many times a minister will take the position that this must be okay with God. And then everything falls out from underneath. The foundation is shaken and things are destroyed. Well, let's... Finish with an up note. Especially since I'm talking about pastors in sin. (laughs) Verse 26. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end. Now what works is he talking about? He's not talking about the works that's made them uh, popular in the community. What works is he talking about? Here he's talking about works of doctrine. Folks, you can't overemphasize the importance of the right doctrine. Now you can take right doctrine to the extreme where all you care about is doctrine and not people. But anything short of that is right on. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. That's a pretty good reward. That's a pretty good reward for living righteously, for living clean in an unclean world for living according to the truth and keeping yourself pure, keeping yourself straight in a crooked and perverse world. That's a pretty good reward. To him that overcometh and keepeth my works under the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about ruling with Jesus in the millennium. Notice who rules with Jesus in the millennium. It's the ones that hold fast to the truth, not just everybody that's saved. Folks, there are rewards in heaven, which means everybody doesn't get the same thing. I'm sure there are some socially-minded people that are going to think it's unfair in heaven, but I'm pretty sure you won't hear that voiced. Everybody won't get the same rewards. We'll re- receive rewards for what we did here on the earth. And I don't know of anywhere in the Bible that you have a greater list of the things that God expects from you in times of trouble than in this, these seven letters. To him that overcometh and keepeth my works and the end to him will I give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my Father. But here's the greatest blessing. Here's the greatest reward. And I will give him the morning star. That's a special relationship with Jesus for holding fast here on the earth. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you hear? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. We thank you for the privilege that we have to walk righteously, walk upright in this world, even in the last days, where men shall wax worse and worse, where the world and everything that can be shaken will be shaken. But we will not, for we are standing upon your word. We are the house that cannot be moved and cannot be shaken no matter what storms of life come because we know your truth, Lord. Now, Lord, I know there are people here that are struggling with sin. They may have found themselves entangled with things that their heart hates, yet they can't seem to break free. I thank you, Father, for the power that's in the name of Jesus that strengthens them to release them. In the name of Jesus, We command you to be free. In the name of Jesus. According to the desire of your heart. We command you to be free. Lord if we have the power in the church. To turn people over to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh. We certainly have power. To join together. In the name of Jesus. To set people free. And we do that now. In Jesus precious name. In Jesus precious name. Father, what a privilege it is to know that Jesus is guiding us, that we're in his hands, that he has a purpose for our church, a purpose for the church to reach the world, a purpose for the church to grow and flourish, and to show the love of Jesus to others. Thank you, Father, for revealing to us how we can cooperate with you most effectively, In every aspect of our church lives. We ask Father that you would make every one of us. Able ministers of the gospel. That we would be able to reach others with our. Christian walk. Not just the words that we speak. But the manner of life that we live. That's what's most important Father. And we recognize our role. We thank you, Father, for making it so. We thank you, Father, for those that shall be overcomers and rule with you. Because we live by your word, we walk by faith. We keep the body under, and we let your word be the umpire for our lives. Help us to realize the seriousness of this, Father, and the importance. But most of all, the great victory that belongs to us because we are in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Did you notice I didn't look over at my wife one time this morning? (laughs) Not once. I have a special reward in heaven for that. (laughs) Unless I just gave it up. (laughs) Hallelujah. Before we go, let's just lift our hands and worship him for just a moment. Lord, we magnify your name. We exalt you. We're not playing church, Lord. It's too late in the game to play church. We worship you out of a heart of love. We serve you because we want to serve you. You see our hearts, Father. You see the things that we are dealing with, struggling with perhaps in many cases. But Lord, thank you that you judge us by our heart. We thank you, Father, for the power to overcome any and everything That the enemy brings against us. Set a fire. At work in us Lord. Those that are lukewarm. Set them on fire. In Jesus precious name. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Well God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Have a great day. Come back and be with us tonight if you can.